I'm Margot Neal. I'm Siobhan McHugh. And this is Heart of Artness. A journey into the cross-cultural stories that animate the Aboriginal art world. this episode we're looking at how indigenous art was used to gain political and legal rights. It's a really interesting area. I remember the Bicentennial in 1988. What do you remember about it in terms of how it polarised the country around indigenous politics and how art played into all that? Yeah, well, there's no doubt that the Aboriginal voice was heard loud and clear in '88 because Whilst white Australia was clearly celebrating this as a, as a milestone of progress and achievement, Aboriginal people clearly couldn't celebrate it for the same reasons. It was certainly a turning point in our lives and a lot of loss and sadness has occurred since and as a consequence. So we could not have a voice, so we had to have a voice. And so there was, a, there was marches, you know, protest marches, there's exhibitions to counteract this sense of achievement as white people were celebrating it. But it was interesting because the Bicentennial Authority had asked various groups around Australia to participate in it. And in Arnhem Land, of course, two things happened. One, the John Pilger book, Secret Country, was out and... There was an Aboriginal person, a father of a son who died, who saw, found that book in his son's belongings, which are normally burnt after uh, after a death. And he was a fairly active agent in suggesting that maybe we should do something about exposing our history and we'll do it through art, because they were artists. John Mundine, of course, who was the art advisor of Guinea at the time. Together they all came up with a hollow log coffin, seems to have been an appropriate response. And then one thing led to another, and there were five and there were ten, and then they just kept, the commissions kept coming in. So eventually it became obvious that we'd make 200. 200. Then it celebrates one year for um, basically every death or deaths in each of those years over the 200 years. Spark paintings and mark making has always been a form of assertion of identity or of title to country anyway. So this just took on a contemporary um, and another political power. So the, the 200 hololog coffins, as you know, then became the Aboriginal Memorial. And fortunately, we had a very forward-thinking director of the National Gallery of Australia at the time, Mr Mollison, who then took it in as a very high-profile, profound statement about Aboriginal Australia and the Aboriginal voice. And it is to this day still the only really public memorial to Aboriginal history and Aboriginal deaths. The other one, of course, was Nagura Canvas and Fitzroy Crossing in 1997. It was a huge canvas of, I don't know, eight, ten metres in which people painted their particular sites and presented it to the Native Title Tribunal in order to claim, make a very powerful political statement about their connection to country in a way that can't be done with just lots of bits of paper and talking. So art was used again in this case and that Nagura canvas has sort of travelled the country. So it's a very particular way of making political statements that are both... um, politically powerful and in a way 
though the statements are very strong and you could see as confrontational, because they're made through art, they are not as confrontational, so the actual issues can be seen and dealt with. Okay, well, let's give it a listen. So uh, here's the episode. It's episode three, and it's called Art as Title Deeds. Your seatbelt fastened until the aircraft has come to a complete stop and the captain has switched off the seatbelt sign. When you arrive at Gove Airport near the town of Nullanboy in northeast Arnhem Land, it's bracing to hear the cabin announcement that you're now on Aboriginal land. In over 30 years in Australia, I've never heard it before. In the airport beside the luggage carousel, there's a mural of a man, body painted for ceremony, his arm drawn back to throw a long spear. Alongside, a message reads, the Yolnu people, traditional owners of the land and waters of northeast Arnhem Land, welcome you to Nullanboy. The battle for recognition of these rights began back in 1963, as a Swiss mining company was eyeing the rich reserves of bauxite ore in these parts. The 60s saw plenty of protest movements, but the Yolnu had a different approach. They used their art to win political and legal gains. It started with an artefact that's now known as Australia's Magna Carta. I'm in the museum at the Buku Laringay Mulka Art Centre in Yirrkala, 600 kilometres east of Darwin, in northeast Arnhem Land. This is Yolnu country, and I'm here with art historian Ian McLean and senior Indigenous curator Margot Neal. Historically significant looking at some of the earliest Yolnu political art. The original petition from 1963 hangs in Parliament House in Canberra. These are actually real, aren't they? No, I think the whole thing's a photographic reproduction. This reproduction shows a typewritten statement in English and the Yolnu Matha language, signed by traditional landowners and illustrated by Yolnu iconography. And the idea was that the writing on a typewriter on paper that's power, writing on paper is power in the Western world, and then this is the power in the Yolnu world, so it was sort of like a, like a hybrid petition. The petition simply asks Parliament to hear the views of the Yirrkala people before they permit the excision of part of Arnhem Land that's home to about 500 Aboriginal people. <laughs> the Bark petition didn't stop the mining, but the use of a Western convention, such as a formal written statement, alongside art that, as we'll see, helped demonstrate their claim to the land, was hugely symbolic. The petition was certified by the senior Labour Party politician Kim Beasley, father of the Labour senator of the same name. Beasley was in Yirrkala, went into the church panels, was blown out by them. He got the idea for the Bark Petition when he saw 16 panels the Yolnu had drawn earlier that year for the Methodist Church. And he had this inspiration, which he claimed came from God. He said God guided his hand. He said if you do a Bark painting with the petition written out in the middle, it'll blow everyone's socks off, which it did. Let's go. Will we go and look at the church panels? These 16 panels, about three metres high, used to sit either side of the altar in the Methodist church at Yirrkala. 
They show abstract and figurative art, divided into the two halves, or moitiés, that in Yolnu philosophy represent all living things. Everything from a plant to a human is either Jua or Yiricha, and all life is seen in this relational way. So if you're Jua, you can only marry a Yiricha. But the setting out of the 16 panels representing the 16 clans of the Yolnu people was also a sort of declaration. Yeah, and so it's, it's perhaps the earliest self-conscious statement of uh, Yolnu identity as opposed to clan identities. Self-conscious. It, it, it's a sort of federation, you know, it's, it's really a representation of the federation of the clans as um, Yolnu. Instigated. How did it start? Well, Howard said it was Narachin's idea. Narachin was someone who, in his history, and I'm actually writing a biography of Narachin, was uh, one of the people who had been strongly involved with Europeans from the moment of uh, the sort of beginning of the imposition of uh, European control, which was very, very late in Northeast Ireland. Since European colonizers arrived here around 1934, the Yolnu have accommodated a string of academics, but few have become as integrated into the community as this one. Uh, Howard Morphy, and uh, I've uh, been researching Australian Aboriginal art and material culture for uh, most of my life, uh, since I was a master's student at University College London. Yeah. Howard is an anthropologist. His wife, Frances, is a linguist. They've been steeped in Yolnu culture for over 40 years. But Howard still vividly remembers his first night here as a callow PhD student in 1976. What was the Akala like? I mean, it was uh, that first night. It was obviously being in a magical environment. It was in the perfect dry season time of the year. And at that time in the evening, uh, you would hear uh, and see campfires uh, all around you, uh, and you'd hear the sound of uh, you know, the yodaki, clapsticks, singing. Uh, and uh, you know, the smell of smoke from the fires and the sound of the didgeridoo and the stars. One of the first people Howard would meet was Narachin Maimuru, the inspiration behind the famous church panels, and a Yolnu leader on many levels. He was an extraordinary orator, quite a metaphysical speaker. Uh, so after he gave a speech, people would sometimes say, I'm not exactly sure what he said, but it was really important. So um, he was an incredible intellectual. Narachin was also an extraordinary dancer, painter, maker of any kind of material object. He was someone who was perpetually working and a very innovative artist. I mean, an innovative artist, but someone who, in terms of the way he presented himself, was someone who was simply, in a sense, exercising the law associated with his clan and his society. So here you've got the, the seven sisters, the eldest one in the middle, 
Her job is to school the girls up on gender relations and... In curating the acclaimed Songlines exhibition at the National Museum of Australia, Margot and her team showed powerfully how Aboriginal peoples encode their knowledge of country in songs and paintings. It's a human form, so the story stays alive and continues through, the, through time. And, um, in Western terms, the paintings and songs that show this knowledge of country are kind of equivalent to the title deeds that show you own a property. And therefore it's a knowledge system telling you where the food is, where the water is, where the shade is and beware of the risks and hazards of the desert. So Except nobody can steal these title deeds because the vast information they contain is passed on orally. It's, it's performative and theatrical in a way too because that's the way knowledge is imparted. It's an embodied knowledge system. The primary mode of transmission of knowledge is through performance. So for millennia, as Will Stubbs the manager of the Buku Laringay Mulka Art Centre in Yurikala points out, no interloper could lay claim to what wasn't his. Because he won't have the knowledge, he won't be able to manifest the understanding of the essence of that country. He won't know where the points are that make that country what it is. He won't be able to sing and recite the epic poetry which would be akin, which is still akin to something like the Iliad something like the Odyssey, hundreds and hundreds of short songs that detail as a memnonic task the wealth of information that stems from that country and he won't be able to crystallise the DNA in a, a pattern because these things will have been held close and they will have only been passed on in secret institutional arrangements like cabinet um, to the person who is the owner. Of course, many ancient cultures from India to Iceland shared knowledge via oral traditions. As a child in Ireland, I loved hearing our great mythic narratives. The warrior Cúchulainn, who took the place of the guard dog he killed. The children of Lear, who were turned into swans by their evil stepmother the great chief Fionn McCool, who became leader after he ate from the Salmon of Knowledge. On the long drive to Gangan in the last episode, I told the artist, Garawan, about how the Salmon of Knowledge swam up to this particular part of the river every year and had to be caught by the leader. He was nodding as I spoke, and when I finished, he said, yeah, I know that story. But Irish legends are a mere historical blip compared to Aboriginal stories of country and creation. Aboriginal culture takes the oral tradition a step further by encoding the knowledge in sacred designs called minchi the basis of Yolnu traditional art today. These designs are like an alternative kind of songline. That design or Minchi, sacred clan design for that particular country, when is also a language which sounds like a stretch, but when that design is in front of someone who's literate, that will trigger them to sing the Iliad, to sing those songs. <laughs> and 
and then another person coming along who didn't paint that design, who hasn't heard that person sing, will sing the same songs. And um, that will basically recite a book. And if you were there with your microphone and you recorded that and you had someone who was able to translate it, you would be able to do that and then transcribe it into English or whatever language you wanted and you would have a book. So in that way these marks do convert directly to text once it's gone through um, those technologies. And this is how a design could be, one of the things a design can be is a title deed. Hold that thought, we'll come back to how that plays out legally. But let's look at what made the Yolnu able to apply these concepts in a way that other Aboriginal peoples did not. Systematised colonisation came to this region 150 years later than to the east coast of Australia. Although we heard last episode about a massacre at Gangan in 1911, as Howard reminds us, the Yolnu were more fortunate than most when it came to such out-and-out atrocities. I think Yolnu were colonised at just that moment when it became unacceptable to massacre them. They were on the edge of you know, the police sending in punitive expeditions in the 1930s. Uh, the missionaries uh, were... Um, uh, and, and, and had been having a long argument, the mission, for many years, uh, that this kind of thing was no longer acceptable. So Yolngu were colonised at that moment when there wasn't an expeditionary force coming in. So they were able to engage what they felt on their own terms with Europeans who were coming in and finding, in a sense, ones who engaged with them, persuading them to work with them and uh, that whole sort of process created a very different kind of history. It's kind of staggering to think that when Howard showed up in 1976, Narachin could tell him virtually the whole history of colonial encounters there. They only went back about 40 years. As we heard last episode, the Yolnu were lucky in that the two Methodist missionaries at Jirakala, first Wilbur Chasling and then Edgar Wells and his wife Anne, weren't the kind of beat-the-culture-out-of-them types that sadly others copped. Wells was pretty radical for his time. He actually lost his job as a result of advocating the Bach petition. Before him, Chasling had also encouraged the art production. Uh, Chasling uh, saw art and craft as being a, a source of resources for Yolngu and for the mission. So the sale of art was actually almost integral to the Methodist missionization process. From the start, the Yolngu considered how much they might reveal to outsiders through their art. For Chasling, a Yolngu elder told Howard they drew what they called anyhow paintings. Yes, uh, Chasling said to us, uh, we asked, what do you want us to paint? Uh, you know, which designs, which... He said, Chasing said, just anyhow. So we painted anyhow. Now, Yolngu will have a category of painting, Wakingo, 
um, which means animals in their ordinary capacity as opposed to totemic capacity. So it literally it means sort of ordinary things. So they did ordinary paintings. So you see most of the paintings in the Chasing Collection are paintings of sets of animals associated with particular environments. There are relatively few clan designs and things like that. And here's a bit of trivia. What do you do when you quit being a Methodist missionary in a remote tropical community? Chaseling couldn't have chosen a more different setting for his next post. He was uh, employed as a toll collector at Sydney Harbour Bridge. A bit of a change. uh, Well, you know, he was someone who uh, undoubtedly uh, would have worked all of his life. He was in his 70s. It was something to do. He, uh, you know, he was a very active human being. episode we're listening mostly to two white fellas talking about this uh, Howard Morphy an anthropologist and, and Will Stubbs from the Arts Centre now the series is about the the cross-cultural story so it's about the the lived experiences of all the people who intersect with Aboriginal art in different ways but I'm feeling a little bit funny about having these two white guys talking so much about their experience of Yonu culture I mean, there's, there is a view that whitefellas should just butt out and let the Aboriginal voice speak only for itself. Only the Aboriginal voice should speak about Aboriginal things. So how do you see that issue? Is it okay to have Will and Howard mm-hmm. talking at length about y'all new stuff? Well, the reality is we are all Australians now. We live on a shared... We share the continent. We share the history... We share all the um, the art centres, the, the commerce, if you like, the commercial production, the artistic production. So we're intermarried. Um, so it's unrealistic to say um, that other voices can't be heard in this cross-cultural interaction because that's what it is, a cross-cultural interaction. So there's that space for a multiplicity of voices who have a multiplicity of views and, you know, the white fellows that you're talking about, you know, they would be talking about not the Indigenous story, they're talking about their story in relation to Indigenous experience, their indi- experience of things Indigenous. So um, it's a response to their lives um, in, in an Indigenous community or an Indigenous study, a field of study. So who... who and all the people who cooperate, work with them, collaborate... Um, in this mutual um, endeavour that they have together, is they're the people who can say we don't want to work with them or hear them, not anyone else. So no one outside the motherhood statements of, you know, no one else can talk about anything Aboriginal except Aboriginal people is is just craziness, you know, because the that Aboriginal person, if it is an Aboriginal person or a white person, say it can't speak for the people who the white people are speaking with or for or about. That's, you know, so it's really, the, it's a very individual relationship. It's all about relationships at the end of the day. So in its essence, you know, it is no longer appropriate for a non-Indigenous person to tell an Indigenous story uh, without permission of the Indigenous person whose story it is, 
Mm. Um, but that's very different than, um, you know, people who work closely in these communities or in the industry, not talking about their role and uh, interactions. And they have had a, a huge immersion. Yeah. I mean, even people who've been there for a little while have a story. And now, even if you've been there for six months or 12 months and invariably on the invitation of an Indigenous person or organisation, you know, you have your story as well. So, you know, I think um, making rash, bland statements of the sort that, you know, only Indigenous people can talk about Indigenous things, well, it does need a fair bit of unpacking. In 1968, the mining company Nabalco was established in Nullanboy. What became known as the Gove Land Rights case of 1971 was a turning point in Aboriginal land rights. They said, well, we're not going to go down without a fight. And those same people went on in the court case, the famous court case Gove Land Rights case from Liverpool and Nabalco. And Justice Blackburn uh, famously said in that case, if ever there was a government by law rather than government by man, then this is it. The Yolnu lost, but they succeeded in planting a crucial seed. Terra nullius, the British contention that the Australian continent was essentially an ungoverned zone when they arrived, was baseless. As a former criminal lawyer, Will Stubbs could see how conflicted Justice Blackburn must have been. Uh, this is a, a guy, you know, couldn't have been more a part of the dominant mainstream Anglo-Celtic culture. Uh, Supreme Court judge of the Northern Territory sitting alone, having heard the evidence and been shown the secret objects from the men who had been cross-examined by the QCs of the government and the Territory and the mining company at, tried to be cross-examined out of the proposition that they were a legal society. Um, but at that point he's staring into the abyss. So having found that this is a government by law rather than by men, so it's not just some tribal hodgepodge of people wandering around doing whatever they like, that whatever is politically convenient or expedient, but a group of people bound by knowable, verifiable law. Once he finds that, he's looking at making a big decision and in the end he squibbed it. But the logical conclusion under British law is if there is a, a system of law, then British law can't flow into that space unless it is that law is ceded, specifically legislated away, or there is a war declared and a treaty arranged that will determine what is the space within which British law can enter. And I don't blame him particularly personally for finding um, a way out and suggesting that, oh, one of these people said, I don't own the land, the land owns me, so we're clearly talking about something that doesn't apply to this case, um, and he fudged it. That decision 
to uphold indigenous land and sea rights wouldn't happen till the Mabo case in 1992. In the 70s and 80s, meanwhile, the Yolnu were getting on with selling their art. But given that it was now being made deliberately for the outside world, they made a decision to stop using the minchi, or sacred clan design, that encoded knowledge. Instead, they'd give Westerners what they seemed to want, things they could recognise. This convention grew up that uh, when painting for outside people as distinct from sacred ceremonial purposes, the design would have a heavy figurative image on it. And this was satisfying to the people who wanted a painting of a crocodile or a stingray, who basically, it's like reading Playboy for the articles, you know. They, it's something that people could see and they could understand, whereas they couldn't read the sacred design underlying it. Aboriginal art was taking off at this time, and Howard Morphy helped things along for the Yolnu. He gathered paintings for the ethnographic collection at the National Museum and held an exhibition, Yurikala Art, at the Australian National University in Canberra. It was a sellout. <laughs> So in 1984, Howard organised a major exhibition at the National Gallery, supported by the Institute of Aboriginal Studies. It happened at a time when the founding director, James Mollison, was just becoming receptive to the idea of Aboriginal art. The National Gallery at the time, ironically, although it supported this, wasn't actually purchasing much Aboriginal art. And uh, I wrote to all the art centres, and it was huge. The Aboriginal Artists Agency provided sort of major paintings. Aboriginal Arts and Craft uh, had become bankrupt, so I got some of their bankrupt stock. And on this occasion, we invited James Mollison uh, to come the evening before and have his choice of what he wanted. Uh, Mollison had sort of undergone a conversion on the road to Damascus. Uh, and at that moment had decided that uh, he would have to start building their Aboriginal art collection up. Anyway, Mollison bought something like 30 paintings walking around. So, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was, <laughs> it was extraordinary. And that was entirely sold out. You know, everything was sold. So, I mean, I knew that uh, Aboriginal art at that moment in time was um, very, very uh, marketable. Then came the political activism of the 1988 Bicentennial. At the Barunga Festival in the Northern Territory, an annual community sporting and cultural event, the then Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, was presented with two paintings and text calling for indigenous rights. Written on bark, it became known as the Barunga Statement. It was enormously symbolic. In the late 90s, a Yolnu elder, Jamboa Marawili, began thinking about how they might again claim the power of the knowledge encoded in the art to assert legal rights, this time maritime rights, under threat from various fishing interests. He came up with the idea of getting artists from different clans along the coast to paint their long-established relationship with the sea. Places like this one I'm at now Shady Beach at Yurikala, or Blue Mud Bay, 
or Melville Bay, names, of course, imposed by the colonizers. The resulting 49 works, known as the Saltwater Collection, paralleled the church panels of three decades before. Uh, so the saltwater paintings were an obvious uh, uh, strategy, I think, for Yongu to adopt. Uh, they were, in fact, if you like, a distributed form of the church panels, because what you were doing was producing paintings all the way along the coast of different clan groups, relationship and rights um, to land. Uh, and it was needed uh, because of continual incursions in the intertidal zone. And it was an area of enormous ambiguity. Yolngu assumed that they actually owned the intertidal zones. And uh, people were genuinely really outraged uh, by, in particular, the Barramundi uh, fishermen, uh, by the fact that they would, uh, you know, uh, sever a crocodile's head in a sacred place. I mean, I'm sure that wasn't then uh, uh, a deliberate action, that it was a sacred place, but who knows? Then you have this incredible relationship with the art centre. What is its role in this? I mean, its role is to respond to Jung as saying this would be a thing to do. But they also have to think, how the heck are we going to afford to buy all of these paintings? And they were producing an absolutely stunning series of paintings. In the end, the National Maritime Museum was keen to buy that particular collection. And the outcome of that was that after Jumbo's saltwater collection, uh, you know, when I say Jumbo's, after the collection of 49 artists was bought by the Australian National Maritime Museum, the elders took the proceeds of the sale of that and came up with the Mulka project, which is a digital archiving and digital studio section that was finally opened in 2007. The Mulka project is a thriving part of the art centre. It records and archives the songs you've heard throughout this series. The Saltwater Exhibition, called Saltwater Uricala Bark Paintings of Sea Country, was held in 1997. It took over 10 years, but in 2008 it would eventually trigger legal recognition by the High Court of the Yolnu's claim to the intertidal zone. But Will Stubbs believes it had even bigger cultural repercussions. In order to make the art have maximum impact, Jamboa started a movement that would reverse the emphasis on figures of art that the Yolnu had been painting for Westerners and overtly reclaim the raw power of the clan design, or Minchi, and its capacity for revelation. Prior to that, there'd been a big black crocodile or a big black stingray or some element drawn out of the design and made explicit and manifest and almost in a way, the compassionate way Jung would describe it, was to protect the uninitiated from something too rawly powerful, too sacred only to be able to be seen um, by initiated, knowledgeable people. So something similar to in ceremony, where young men emerge from the bush, Their chests are painted with a, a design that is potent and powerful, and they are 
manifesting that power, they become that power and in their minds and in their body and their actions they are that force and during that emergence from ngāra or men's business in the bush, uninitiated people will lower their eyes. And they will um, shield themselves from the full force of that power and essentially that's a kindness to them uh, and that kindness became a conformist protocol for all young art made after the initial blush of sharing and generosity um, when they realised that the objects they were exchanging didn't, weren't being received as diplomatic tokens of undying uh, fealty and unending alliance. They were regarded as trading items and moved on and on that basis Jung went back into their shell and they were still in that shell in the late 90s so that anything painted for the outside was mandated to have some heavy figurative imagery. Essentially that would be the focus of the non-Indigenous people. They would say, oh look, it's a painting of a crocodile. Not seeing that in the background is the law contained in this abstract design because they couldn't read it. They really paid no attention to it and they were protected from its full force through that. During the saltwater period where the designs were used for a live political purpose, had they, as they had been done uh, in the Barunga Statement, in the Bark Petition, in the Yirrkala Church Panels, uh, and as they have been done between Yung well before European arrival as statement of identity and strength. Jambua led a movement to loosen up this protocol, which is not itself law, but had just become a convention in terms of painting for the outside world. And he had a very hard road to hoe, persuading people to unlock designs that hadn't been seen previously, making up for deficits um, where people had died before passing it on properly and arranging for those people to be fully, properly reinformed by the systems within Yonga law to, to, to sort of facilitate and accelerate that process so that every piece of the coastline was identified properly. And in the course of doing that, his painting style began to shift. This artistic movement practised by Jamboa Marawili Galama Meimaru, Monyabi Marika and others would become known as Buyak. Uh, Yonga have an aesthetic vocabulary and Buyak is a word that really a dictionary translation would be, you know, faintness. And it's very similar to uh, our concept of, oh, that's a faint image. And it may be, you know, we may apply it to, to the Turin Shroud or something like, oh, that's a faint image. Oh, gosh, it probably is Christ. Yeah, it might be a body emerging from that or something like that. You can see something in the distance faintly. Now, a characteristic of Yolngu art in general is the interplay between figuration and abstraction. So it's there at the heart of Yolngu paintings. And the Almost by definition, that interplay means that sometimes you see a figure emerging and sometimes you don't. Yongu, in a way, deliberately play on that kind of ambiguity.
Jambua got what he did was he submerged that stingray back into the water. So instead of being a heavy black figurative object, the water lapped over it and it became covered with the design for that water so that it was almost invisible or buoyak. Uh, whereas the designs had been painted quite formally in straight vertical perpendicular bands, for instance, he bent them. So if they were fire, he made them flame. If they were water, you know, he made them ripple. Um, he bent them into a crocodile's nest. And essentially he fashioned weapons and protection out of this minchi. This song is about a fire. That the clan designs are evoking aspects of uh, the spirituality of ancestral beings. The classic example of this is a diamond design, which is associated with wild honey and fire. When people are painting that, they're actually evoking much more specific meanings associated with the wild honey ancestor that are there in the songs and so on and so forth. When the song talks about the fierceness of the fire and the flames and the sparks, then that can be seen in the way that the crosshatching incorporates red lines and uh, the, the sort of white dots. When people are talking about the masking nature of smoke, dense white cross-hatching can echo those particular kind of things. So even in the art that looks as though it is geometric, or Europeans use the word abstract wrongly in that context, a certain degree of iconicity. You know, you can see the flames, you can see the spark. So the idea of buoyak has got to do with the fact that things are present and absent at the same time in a particular you know, image. That simultaneous existence and absence seems an apt companion to the all-new two ways philosophy that Will Stubbs mentioned last episode. But Jamboa harnessed it as a way of galvanizing his people to proclaim the authority vested in them by their elders generations before. His message was clear. We have all of that power that they gave to us and that's why they gave it to us, so that we can use it. And that power has inherent within that the power to protect the law, to use it actively. So we will forge these patterns into our shields. We will make them do what they're meant to do, speak for the land which cannot speak for itself. We will paint the identity of the sea in its full power. We won't hold back. Um, we will turn it up to 11 and show them the power of these designs because that is their purpose. Their purpose is to protect this country. And unbelievably, 10 years after that decision, the High Court found that the Yongo are the owners of the intertidal zone, contrary to almost all precedent in the Anglo legal system. And the other byproduct is that a generation of artists grew up thinking the convention was make your art powerful, not hide your power. And that's where we are now. And so it's had an art historical effect as well. Uh, 
And I think the only way of thinking about two ways is quite brilliant. It is two ways. They've consciously been able to maintain the idea of the distinctiveness of their uh, own sort of world, and yet have it always in dialogue with other people's ways of being. No, we're not halfway between those two. We're actually able to recognize the value of different ways of being and to incorporate those into our own action. The essence that power is not, you know, in a Northern European winter summer binary good and evil sense uh, capable of being described as a good power or a bad power, which is our first question. Um, that's not how things are in the Yorma world. It's a power that has at its source the proposition that Yorma are humans, that Yorma have law, that the land has spirit, and that the Yorma are an embodiment of the spirit of that land. And so that's what's being gunned into your mind and body at a cellular level by being in the presence of Yongo art from a Yongo perspective. Have they changed the way you look at the world? Um, no, probably not. And my orientation as an anthropologist is to actually uh, you know, see human cultures as being both different but sharing enormous things in common and uh, to be able to enter those other kinds of worlds, a wonderful sort of privilege. I've been very, very lucky. But have you, you, you have got close to certain individuals, it sounds oh, enormously like. enormously close. So, I mean, emotionally, I have vast numbers of relatives. You know, when the immature side of European Australia regards cultural difference as some sort of conspiracy designed to complicate and frustrate their, the simplicity of their lives and I think this is the big issue that indigenous people face. I mean most of the struggles that you see every day and you know are enacted through the art centre activities every day is just to get an acknowledgement that indigenous Australians exist and that they're human and that they have uh, their own way of seeing things. That was Art as Title Deeds, episode three of our series Heart of Artness, devised and produced by me, Siobhan McHugh, with the support of Margot Neal, Senior Indigenous Curator at the National Museum of Australia, and art historian Ian McLean, Hugh Ramsay Chair of Contemporary Art at the University of Melbourne. Heart of Artness is a University of Wollongong research project funded by the Australian Research Council. Thanks to Howard Morphy and Will Stubbs and the artists and staff of Buku Larangay Muka Art Centre. And check out our website, Heart of Artness. You'll find pictures there of the fabulous art of the Yolnu, extra resources, other episodes and more.